0: The next episode of the Expensive Word podcast, this is officially episode number one because episode, the previous episode, would be considered an episode zero in that it's the intro to the whole show. One of the things that I wanted to talk about today was who I am because I didn't really give a formal introduction in the last episode, and then I want to talk about what the word expensive means. since. Uh, it's used in a unique context when I say expensive words, and that's, you know, the whole premise of the show. So I thought, let's let's talk about that more. So first, me. I'm Kristen. I grew up in Southern California, where I lived on, I guess, the wrong side of the railroad tracks, is what my friends always used to say, uh, technically, I grew up in Harbor City, which is like this strip, and they call it L.A. Strip. Um, It's like a strip of land that Los Angeles wanted so that they could stay connected to the port of L.A., so that someone else couldn't own it. And if you are from L.A., you probably know what that area is, and it used to be really dangerous. Uh, I knew people that got killed in gang violence while I was growing up, um, but it's not that way anymore. And now it's a pretty amazing neighborhood to live in. The houses there are worth a ridiculous amount of money, which I guess I'm glad for my dad since he owns a house there. But I would never pay that much for a house in that area personally. But you know, my little, my one little statement is not going to wreck the real estate market and in the South Bay part of Harbor City, which doesn't have a specific name. Um, So I grew up in sunny slash smoggy Southern California. I actually have uh, a physical result where I have um, my airways get irritated all the time because I grew up in so much smog. And that's not really a good combination for where I live now, which is Western Pennsylvania. Uh, But I just want to preface everything I'm saying with, Sometimes I'm going to say, you guys, I try not to say it anymore. That is the Southern California version of y'all or yins. And I understand that it's not really gender inclusive. So I apologize in advance. I'm working on it. I need something else to say. And y'all and yins haven't really, they haven't stuck. So I'm trying to reprogram my brain. i I ask you to bear with me and know that my heart is all for gender inclusive inclusivity. And that's one of my goals when I work with clients is to help them make their manuscripts gender inclusive and also to represent non-binary groups. Um, I guess that segues into I work as a copy editor. I'm also a developmental editor. That means that I can fix your whole book for you. That's literally what it means, that I am trained to fix any part of your book from grammar problems to plot issues to character arcs. I love books so much, and somehow I'm not sure exactly how, but I've become a uh, an editor of all kinds. The only thing I haven't done is acquiring an uh, editor. I have never worked for a publishing house officially, And I don't really want to. I mean, it would have to be the right situation because I feel like right now, publishing houses don't understand their customers. And one of those customers is me. I am one of those customers. And I've seen a lot of angry readers, especially within the last year, who are being sold books they don't want. So, you know, I would love to consult for any publishing house, but I'm kind of looking for a way to disrupt that whole system so that we can get better end products out to actual living real customers who want those kinds of products. Uh, what else about me? I have a bachelor's degree in comparative world literature. I'm sure that's not like most people don't care about that, but if you care about it, I have a degree in literature which means I read a lot of books from 2002 to 2005 when I was in college. I graduated a little bit early, thankfully, because that saved me a bunch of money. And I would recommend if you are trying to figure out what to do about college in this craziness we're in right now, don't, please don't pay $40,000 a year to go to online school. That's dumb. Don't do that do community college online or some other online school. Um, it's not safe to be on big campuses with thousands of people right now. So they're trying to adjust and recalibrate, but just don't go into that much debt for a name on your diploma. My husband, he always brags about this. He went to community college for his first two years, and his diploma says California University uh, State CSU California State University of Long Beach, just like mine does. Only he paid half the price. So be like him. Uh, don't don't throw your money into the fire pit. That is universities trying to figure out how to cope with COVID nineteen. That's just a little. That's a little bonus for you um, from Kristen's life experience situation. And you know, I'm talking. I have a thirteen year old. I'm 36, which I said in the last um, episode. I was a young mom. I had my first kid when I was 23. And I. so we're already talking about that because she's one year away from high school. And, you know, time just goes by so quickly. And we're trying to figure out what she's going to do. And she's definitely not going to spend a ton of money for her GE classes. So... Just a little little thought about that, if she goes to college at all. Uh, so basically, back, I have a degree. It wasn't that much back then. I don't regret it. I really loved college. Uh, I studied comparative world literature with an emphasis in religious studies in ancient Greek. And interestingly, I didn't know this would happen. I ended up moving to Greece. I lived in Athens, Greece for seven years with my husband and two kids, which became three kids at some point in there, uh, in 2012. And I had to forget all of the ancient Greek I learned, uh, so that I could try to learn modern Greek, which I really tried. Okay. I mean, I tried so hard. My brain still retains a lot of things, but I'm, I'm by no means fluent. I can like say, Hey, how are you? How's the weather? Uh, I really don't like that color, those kinds of things, but nothing like, hey, let's talk about literature. And I will say uh, a quick thank you to my previous writing group who would always switch from Greek to English just because I was there because they knew there was absolutely no way I could discuss literature or writing or anything, even the slightest bit more complicated than conversational language in Greek. So thank you. I miss you all. I think about you often. One of my one of my writing friends, Stavros, sent me a picture today. I think he was uh, maybe he was feeling nostalgic, and he wanted me to feel nostalgic with him. Uh, if that's the case, it worked. I totally I totally felt nostalgic, and I was thinking, "Wow, so much has happened since that group even existed. The place where we used to meet uh, it's not a business. It's not the same business anymore." So. There's a lot, so much has changed, as I said, and I've been writing for years. I I tried to write my first novel when I was 13, and it was like one of those typical kind of 13-year-old girl stories where this girl, Bobby, because I thought that was the coolest name for a girl, I still think it's a really cool name for a girl. Uh she went to stay with a family friend because her mom was in some financial trouble, and that was i i won't go too I won't go too into depth on that at this moment um but she so she went and stayed with that friend, and of course her friend her mom's friend had like a teenage boy who lived there and then also a younger boy and Bobby was like right in between their ages, and she's at this point where she's trying to figure out what it means to be turning from a girl into a woman. A coming of, like, I'm a coming of age person, okay? If there's a coming of age story, I will read it. Uh, I've written several coming of age stories, uh, including uh, girls. And then I have another coming of age story that I wrote involving an alien named Ez. And Ez is amazing. And I can't wait to introduce him to you at some point, but he's still... You know, he's he's a he's a work in progress for sure. Um, So, of course, it doesn't surprise me that the first thing I wanted to write was a coming of age story whilst I was coming of age. And then I just kind of I I wrote poetry a little bit and then I decided to take a break from writing. I'm not sure why I started doing that. Uh, The Internet was getting to be an actual thing. Like, I remember when I was 15 years old, we got the Internet at my house which was a big deal uh, for those of you who don't know what it's like not to have the internet exist in your like realm of understanding and then suddenly for it to be in your house. It's pretty crazy. So I think probably I spent a lot of time chatting on AIM. I spent a lot of time on things like Geocities and uh, Nickelodeon.com because it was one of the only websites I was allowed to go on. And you couldn't really do anything on Nickelodeon.com back then as hard as they tried, there was really, I just kind of read through everything. Um, So I think that distracted me for quite a few years. And then I went to this amazing, crazy high school uh, called the California Academy of Mathematics and Science. And I just kind of focused on math and science because I thought this is going to be the thing. I really love science. I'm not too fond of math but if I get to study twice as much science as I would at another school cool I'm gonna do that uh, so I went there and I focused a lot on science and then what happened was I got really burnt out on math and science like by the time I got to physics honors I was really pieced out on the entire situation um, my poor teacher I ditched his class so many times I am really sorry uh, if he ever hears this like I was awful. I'm so sorry I did that to you. And I just didn't understand physics. Like, my friend Krista would tutor me after the class just so I could understand. And that's how I got through chemistry, too. Um, So Jake Ma and Krista, formerly titled, you guys are awesome. You are the reasons why I passed chem honors and physics honors. And I just had a hard time understanding science at a certain point. I wasn't learning the same way that other kids were. But I had this really intense English teacher, Miss Maruna. I still remember her name. I still remember when she said, don't use semicolons because they're too complicated for you right now. So uh, I've graduated to using semicolons. Miss Maruna, thank you for warning me about the fact that they're tricky uh, they're not too tricky though, and I can help you use them. Anyone who wants to use semicolons at some point, I will teach you how to use them. I promise. And I, I realized that I love writing. I love reading. I had kind of forgotten about it. And when I got to college, I was enrolled as an art student at Cal State Long Beach, which, if you know anything about that school, their art program is one. I mean, it's one of the best. It's amazing. And I could not get into any of my prerequisite classes and any class I did get into, I would fail every drawing assignment because I couldn't get into the drawing classes and I didn't know how to draw. Like I could color match really well. I could paint. I could create a well-balanced composition. But listen, if you cannot draw and you're an art major, you're in trouble. And so I was like, okay, let me let me recalibrate. And I realized that if I kept going at the rate I was going, I would not be able to get my Bachelor of Arts for six years. And six years equals a lot of money and a lot of time. And I thought, is this really what I want to do? And I didn't even care about drawing. I wanted to get to furniture design. My father... Uh, went from being a bricklayer to a carpenter to working in um, utilities. And I saw him make hand, making things with his hands my whole life, and I thought that would be awesome if I could get an art degree and focus in wood sculpture and make amazing furniture. But that wasn't, you know, looking back, I can see that wasn't the plan at that point. And I ended up switching to business economics as my major, and I couldn't do the math. Like, the math is pretty hard. I understood a lot of the concepts, but the higher and higher I got up in the class, my professors were like, you know, if if you're having such a hard time with math, like, it's only going to get harder. Maybe you should... Like, is this really what you want to do or you're just doing it because you think you can get a job making good money? And I was like, I mean, I do like it, but also I thought I could get a job making good money. So I started taking Italian as one of my prereqs and someone in that class was taking ancient Greek and I saw their textbook and I was like oh, I love it I mean I just I don't I cannot explain to you why I love Greek so much why I love the characters why I love the history why I love the country now I'm, I'm still obsessed with it uh I think that maybe God put that country in my heart because I ended up living there and serving there for so many years. But I saw that and so I was like, well, why don't I switch from Italian to ancient Greek next semester? Because Italian was like, I was having a really hard time with imperfect verbs, I think is what it was. I don't know, like past Kristen was not the best. Like she didn't have the best staying power. Sometimes things would get hard to like, do and she would just quit and I'm not like that anymore but I guess I'm glad because I ended up in a class with a bunch of people who were either classics majors or they were comparative world literature majors in my first Greek class and I started talking to them and I was like you know I'll just take I'll just take a comparative world literature class to see I mean you know uh I'm gonna get a degree eventually right like I'm working on my prereqs I'll just take this class And, yeah, okay, that was it. Like, I took it. I was like, I love this. I love studying literature. I love books, which is something that I had always loved. I've always loved reading and been obsessed with it. Um, My parents didn't really know what to do with me. I remember when I was 11, they let me read Jane Eyre, and I was kind of of traumatized. And they're like, maybe we shouldn't just, like, let her read any classic. And I think that was a good call because they stopped me from reading Wuthering Heights, which I just read like a year ago and that book made me super depressed so I'm glad that uh you know 11 year old Kristen did not read that one and so I got my degree and I did what my father was pretty upset about I decided to get married to this guy I had just met uh nine months before named Travis Spencer and obviously you know we did get married. My last name's Spencer and it's been almost 15 years that we've been married. I wouldn't say all of those years were super happy, but we've figured out I feel like we've figured out how to love each other the the right way, the righteous way. Um yeah, we have so much fun together. We laugh together, we cry together, we write together. So uh, I got him into writing and he actually makes furniture. So I get to design the furniture and then he makes it. So I still get to live out that part of me, that, that you know, thing that I dreamed about doing way back, I guess not that way back, but yeah, a while ago. And so we went and then we moved to, to Europe after we had our second daughter. And I thought, okay, well, I guess I'm not going to write. I guess I'm going to focus on this thing which was being a missionary and working in the humanitarian sector and uh, I also started writing a blog at that point because I was traveling with really tiny kids like my when we moved to Europe my middle daughter who I will refer to as little K she was only like between 6 and 8 weeks old I think 8 weeks old and she was just super tiny, and I couldn't find anything, any advice about traveling with a kid that small, and then my other daughter, who's medium K, because I'm big K, by the way. We have big K, medium K, and little K, and we have big T and little T. That's our family. And so I I will say traveling with a one- to two-year-old is the hardest. But so I was doing this really hard thing, I guess. I, it didn't seem that hard. Like, it didn't seem that scary when I was doing it. Like, I knew it was hard, but people were like, what are you doing? You're crazy. And uh, my husband was like, why don't you write about this to help other moms? You seem to have, like, figured out these systems. And, uh, you know, we do this all the time now. We have, like, a way of doing all these different parts of traveling so that it's not miserable and that we can get from, you know, Athens to L.A. without wanting to have a total mental breakdown. So I started writing a blog, which is still active, though I do not update it anymore, called Sprouts and Route That's sproutsandroute.com, and that, like, gave me my writing tick back. Like, I was writing consistently uh, at least three or four times a week working on these posts, and I was learning, you know, I was learning my own writing voice as a mom. I was also learning how to be a mom, by the way, while I was doing all this stuff, Looking back, I'm like, you were really brave. You did not like it was either you were really brave or you were really naive. And in my memory, I do see like a mixture of the two. But that got me to the point where uh I was feeling like maybe I want to try to write a novel. But before that happened, uh, I had a friend who asked me to teach a conference for women about confidence. And You know, Kristen in the past wanted to laugh when asked that question. But I had been on this, like, really crazy roller coaster ride of, like, I'm feeling suicidal. I'm okay. I hate myself. I'm ugly and fat and stupid. Oh, today I feel like I can actually do this mom thing and this life thing. And I was at a point where I finally figured out that I was, like, deceiving myself. I was telling myself all these lies every day that I was worthless and totally useless, but I have a soul and you have a soul and that makes you and me both like really valuable. That was a very Valley girl. Really? That snuck in there. And so I sat down to figure out what am I, what am I going to say at this conference? And also, by the way, the conference had to be translated, which was super, sorry, not translated in interpreted the difference between translation and interpretation is translation is written and interpretation is spoken. And interpreting is way harder. And both of my best friends are actually, uh, they, they do interpreting. So I just had to make that clarification for them because it's, it's a thing. And so I had to also leave time in my speech, my planned talk, for interpretation to happen from English to Greek. So I sat down to figure this out and all of a sudden all these realizations came out and that turned into the first version of You Aren't Worthless, which used to be called The Truth About Godly Confidence. And that was my first book. And I did absolutely everything wrong. I self-published it without even editing it. Um, My friend Sarah, Papa John now, read it for me when she was like on break from doing her master's in Manchester, England. And we traded editing. She edited my book for me and I edited her master's thesis, which that was like a lot of faith for you to put in me, Sarah. I really appreciate like that level of confidence in my um, ho-hum editing abilities at that point. And but you know what? She's got her masters, you guys, and I have the published book, so we both won. And also now she has like an adorable little cute babykins that was born during all this craziness. Um so, hi Sarah, I don't know if you'll ever listen to this. And that book, yeah, I did everything wrong and then I was like, I'm going to do more wrong things, so I wrote a whole series of books that no one cared about which, of course, were a coming-of-age series because, you know, that's, like, my jam, right? And that was a disaster. I was so depressed. I, like, poured my heart into these books, and I thought, I want to write a book that deals with uh, same-sex attraction in the Christian church, uh, in the more traditional Christian church, not in the liberal side of the Christian church, so that when my daughter gets older, she can understand how to deal with all this stuff. And now that she's a teenager, and she has read the books, and they have helped her, but like, that's maybe not the best reason to write a whole series of books. And like, not just, I mean, these books are so long. The first book is almost 100,000 words, which is totally not acceptable as far as coming of age, middle grade, uh, contemporary writing. It's a big mistake. And I've tried to figure out if I want to invest the time to fix that series. The answer is I probably won't. I do have an ending that I planned, and people still write me and ask me if that's going to come out. You know, I, I'm i not sure. I have said that I will write it, but I don't know. Um, maybe I will just do a, an, a recording of what's going to—I mean— I can't say. I don't think that right now it would be wise for me to invest so much time in ending out a series that was my very first fiction writing project that has no audience that is some of the worst writing I've seen. Like, it's bad. It's It could be worse, but it's bad. It's not at the level it should be to be published. And that brings me to I moved from uh, Greece to California and then to Western Pennsylvania where my husband was offered a job. And as soon as we got here, within three months, he had lost that job. And we're like, oh, no, what are we going to do? We bought a house. And we couldn't get the money we had put into the house back out of it. So we decided to stay. And that ended up being a really cool thing because I got to watch my kids uh, get healed. And also their ESL teacher is like literally a gift from God. Um Mrs. Grobmeier, you are seriously the best. I love you so much. And so that's been cool. And now I'm here and I decided to go back to school to become a copy editor because I couldn't get developmental editor clients because uh, nobody knows what a developmental editor is. So no one would hire me. And what a developmental editor is, I'll just tell you quickly, is they fix the actual story problems in your manuscript. They do not fix the mechanical grammar issues, which is what a copy editor does. Uh, copy editors also check for consistency. And that's kind of where like the developmental and copy editor overlap is they both check for consistency. They both check for these things, but they uh, developmental editors also have to be up on industry knowledge for all the different genre, genres, for the different acceptable tropes. Uh, They need to understand how your story as a whole will come off to the reader, and they try to help you make changes that will make the reader happy, and they also try to help you do really tricky things. And so that's where I'm at today. I work as a copy editor. I work as as a developmental editor, which I now call Story Engineer, and that's bringing me to this show, Expensive Words, which I wanted to make after some experience of coming out with write the perfect read the fiction edition which is a book that tells you everything you need to know to start writing a fiction novel and people have really found that book helpful and that was amazing for me like look see i can teach people how to write and I thought, why don't I do a show where I help people specifically, like you can write in and ask me a question and I'm going to answer it on air. And that segues into our second topic, which is that expensive doesn't mean fancy. So when I talk about expensive words, I mean not, not words that sound, let's say, highfalutin, not things that sound... Like literature or um, some would say um, like complicated prose or simple prose or uh, I have a book Clear and Simple as the Truth which is all about writing a specific type of really clever uh, prose but that's not what I mean when I say expensive words. What I mean is that you use words that cost you emotionally. And when you spend yourself in a meaningful way and your words are clear and simple and you use fewer words, your reader will not have trouble understanding you. And because of all of that effort, you, made a, you make a really intimate connection with the reader and you turn the reader from a customer into a fan. And that's where this show is going to center around building relationships through writing, which I think is one of the most amazing things about writing is that you can go read one of my books and now you know about me, like you know part of me, you know a little slice of my soul that I fed into those words. Uh, and that's the fiction side. And if you go read one of my nonfiction books, which are really Christiany, So I'm not saying to do that. But if you were to read, for example, You Aren't Worthless, you would know so much about me and you've never even talked to me. So just think about that. That's the power of, of writing. And that is the power that comes from using expensive words. So uh, when I say expensive words, I, don't, I do not mean using literary tricks, I want to say. Like literary terms, for example, like um, for... like using hyperbole or using juxtaposition or foreshadowing. Those things are great tools in like your writing toolkit, but that is not going to equal an intimate connection with the reader the same way using expensive words. will. And you can use both of those. You can use expensive words with those cool literary terms and tools and tricks, whatever you want to call them. But you can't depend on fancy literary trickery to create a connection between you and the reader. So that's what, that's one of the things that we're going to talk a lot about. And I hope you're as passionate about storytelling as I am, because that is my favorite thing to talk about, to teach about, to uh, do. And I love storytelling in every way. Like I am a weeper when it comes to storytelling like if i see something a movie or a cartoon whatever a commercial and it has a really good story i start crying and like the kid my kids are always like are you crying mom i'm all yes i'm crying and it's not bad and i i feel touched by that and that was a good story and so maybe i will tell them why i'm crying just so they understand but i also want to you know let them know it's not it's not a shameful thing to do to show your emotions which I feel like the world is telling us a lot, keep them to yourselves. Don't let us know. We don't want to be bothered by them. And my philosophy, oh, I guess I have a philosophy. I've never called it that before. Um, But my philosophy is that you should show your emotions and that it's good for you to do it in appropriate ways. Like, obviously, I'm in the Mr. Rogers side of this camp where I believe that you can show your emotions in a healthy way without hurting others and without hurting yourself. And that's not my that's not those are that's a paraphrase of his words and I really love that guy and he was way ahead of his time. But he also used storytelling to teach children to teach me because I was one of the children who used to only be able to watch PBS. Um he taught me and millions of other, you know, children and now adults, how to be able to express emotions in a healthy way through storytelling. So storytelling is magic. All right. Uh, The last thing I have on here is to talk about why Write the Perfect Read, the fiction edition, is so short. And I have a note that says, fewer words are always better as long as you don't compromise understanding. So Write the Perfect Read is, it should be under a two-hour read. I mean, it depends on your speed, but I can sit and read the whole book in an hour and a half. And I wanted it to be short because I wanted people to understand that you do not have to learn so many complicated things in order to be able to tell a good story. And that's kind of the point of me as a teacher, as a person, as an online, whatever influencer, whatever you want to call me, uh, I want people to be able to understand the concepts they need for writing fast instead of taking, you know, 10 years like I had to of writing and submitting and getting all these painful notes like i'm i'm not about that i'm gonna tell you exactly what i learned so you don't have to go through the same pain i did you'll go through your own pain because that's part of it um but you know i i want to spare you from unnecessary pain i believe that pain and suffering shape our ability to create uh, impactful art um, But I want to save you from unnecessary pain, and I want to kind of, not kind of, but I want to for sure shake up the way that people learn to write so that they can produce powerful stories in a very short amount of time. And this, the thing about writing is a lot of these concepts are simple if you have someone to explain it to you in a simple way, and anyone. Can learn how to write. It's like Gusto says in Ratatouille, right? That anyone can cook. And at the end of the movie, there's this line, and he says, You know, when I thought about him saying that, I thought it was preposterous, but the truth is, it's ego typing on his skeleton, his skull typewriter, right? He's saying that good cooks can come from anywhere. And I believe that is a universal truth, and that. Good writing can come from anywhere and it can come from you for sure. So that was today's episode and I'm glad you went through this with me. I know that I'm kind of all over the place right now because this is my first real podcast, but it's going to get smoother and we're going to get through this together and we're all going to get better, right? This has been Kristen on the Expensive Words podcast, pouring out my heart for you, my wonderful listener. If there's any question you want to ask me, if there's anything you want to tell me, you can go to expensivewords.com or you can find me on Instagram at kristen.n.spencer, And I would love to hear your wonderful writing thoughts from your amazing writing brain. Happy writing.